Welcome to Practical Christian Living. So as soon as someone says to you, we have a new gospel, this isn't what was taught to us, this is something new, we know that it is not true. I like what Greg Laurie says when he says if it's new, it's not true, and if it's true, it's not new. It has to have that foundation in it, that historical aspect of what Christianity is. Jesus is greater, and His Word is supreme over all. That is the basic theme of the book of Hebrews. Today, a warning to beware of those who claim to bear the name of Christ, but who do not follow the truth, purity, and supremacy of His Word. We're in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 through 14. Here's Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson. Father, thank you so much for the time that we can spend in your word here today. We thank you for you preserving your word from generation to generation. And we can go to the word of God with authority. And we pray now that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher as we take a look at the remainder of this chapter and consider who Jesus is. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The title of our message today is The Real Jesus and the Jesus of the Cults. So we want to look at what the Bible says Jesus is, and we want to see the kind of things that the cults say that lets us know that they are not serving and following the same Jesus. As we look at Hebrews chapter 1, we will look at what's important in this passage and what's important to us today, why it was written to those who were Hebrews, who were facing persecution, who were walking away from the Lord. And it's as if the writer of the book of Hebrews wanted them to know who they were walking away from. They were walking away from God and they were walking towards the law. When the law is weak and that it can't save them, the law is not bad. The law is good. Paul, when he wrote about this, spoke of it. The law is tough. I don't want to live under the law. But the law is good, it's not bad, but the law is weak that it can't save us. They were turning from Christ back to Judaism and they were giving up Jesus in order to go back in again. And whoever wrote this, I think I said Paul earlier, but whoever wrote it, and we, we don't know who wrote it, wanted them to know who Jesus was and the whole book of Hebrews is about the supremacy of Jesus, that Jesus is better than all of these other things. Now, 2 Corinthians 11, 3 and 4, let me read that to you. It says, But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, which we, we have not received, or a different gospel, which we have not accepted, you may well put up with it. Paul writes to Corinthians and he says, I'm afraid for you that you would receive a different Jesus that we didn't preach. Just because somebody says, we believe in Jesus Christ, he is our savior, we love him, he died on the cross, we believe that he created the, all, everything that is in the world, doesn't mean they're bringing to you the same Jesus that the Bible says. And we need to be very careful. In fact, there are at least and I think there's more than this, but I think this is conservative. 
I think there is at least 25 warnings in the New Testament about not being deceived. One of them was in Matthew 24, where Jesus talked about the last days when the disciple says, tell us about the last days and what will be the signs of your coming? And he said, take heed that no one deceives you. For in the last days, many false prophets are going to arise. And there are many false prophets today that say a lot about Jesus, but the Jesus that they bring you is different than the Jesus of the Bible. And they criticize the Bible. These cults will criticize the Bible as not being reliable and their writings as being reliable. We'll get into some of that. Listen also to Paul in Galatians 1 verses 6 through 10 as he warns against false teachings. He says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you into the grace of Christ. Interestingly enough, the same problem was in the city of Galatia that the book of Hebrews addresses. They were turning back to the law. They were turning away from Christ and back into Judaism. And he says, I'm concerned that you've turned to a different gospel, which is not another. It's not, it's not another gospel, a little play on the word there. You turn to another good news, but it's not another. But there are some who trouble you who want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. So as soon as someone says to you, we have a new gospel. This isn't what was taught to us. This is something new. We know that it is not true. I like what Greg Laurie says when he says, if it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. It has to have that foundation in it, that historical aspect of what Christianity is. Let's consider what some of the cults and aberrant groups teach about Jesus. But let me identify, first of all, what a cult would be. A false religion would be Buddhism or Islam or Hinduism. That would be a false religion. A cult would be something that looks similar to Christianity, but isn't. Generally because of the person of Jesus Christ. You could also have a, a satanic cult. You could also have other groups that would be those kind of cults. But the cults that we're interested in today are the ones that say, we're Christians, we're just like you. The cults, the, the main two that we hear about are the Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons. And they are rebranding themselves. Both of them are. If you're going to talk to them today, they're going to say, they're going to use our terminology. I've received Jesus as my Savior. I love him. He's the creator of the world. They're, going, they're very careful and they're trained to use the exact terminology that we use. If you see any videos, and they're good at this, if you see any videos, they will defend their position as being genuine Christians, but they aren't. They're an aberrant group. What's an aberrant group? An aberrant group is someone who is departing from the expected standard, from the standard that we have been given over the centuries. Through the creeds, through, through Christianity, they depart from those standards and the norm of what Christianity is, and especially with what they teach about Jesus. We would call a non-Christian cult anyone who does not accept the historical and biblical person of Jesus, especially the deity of Jesus. 
This is really an important issue because more and more I run into Christians who are going to, to good churches and they don't understand that Jesus is God. You'll say something to them about Jesus being God and they'll say something like, I think he's the son of God, right? And they don't have a good understanding of how clearly the Bible teaches this both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Now, the Mormons, again, they're rebranding themselves, calling them, they don't want to call themselves Mormons anymore. They want to call themselves the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They're also starting to leave off the Latter-day Saints. So you can see a lot of material from them that will just say the Church of Jesus Christ. They're trying to say, we are Christians. We are just like you. We believe the same things that you believe. If you hear them talk about Jesus, you're going to swear you're talking to a Christian. They're not going to tell you anything that is different. Only if you know that they teach something that is different will you know that it's not true. They teach that Jesus, and some of the Mormon church is beginning to reject this teaching now, but they have taught and do teach that Jesus was married. They also teach that Jesus is the brother of Lucifer. And here's how they try to tamp that down. And it's really interesting because they want to defend their position of saying that Satan and Jesus are brothers. By the way, that's not his name. Lucifer isn't his name, but just so you know that. Uh, Lucifer comes from the Greek word that means morning star, and God is mocking Satan because he wanted to lift himself up, this arch enemy in Isaiah. And so he says, how you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, the King James used the word Lucifer, and so people named him that. So that's not his name. He is the arch enemy. He is the dragon. He is the serpent of old, okay? But they say that he is the brother of Jesus. And here's how they defend it. They say, well, we Mormons believe that everybody was created as a spirit being in the past. So they believe that everybody was created and that one of those spirit beings that was created and, and eventually, the spirit beings are going to get a body. You exist and you live with God before that. And these spirit beings are going to get a body. And that Jesus was the best spirit being that had ever been created. He was such a good guy that God chose him to come to this earth and make redemption for mankind. And so he was a spirit being. Another one of those spirit beings was Lucifer. And he was really wicked and evil. And so he took a rebellion of other spiritual beings. I guess these guys would have become humans. I don't know how their aspect of angels and these spiritual beings that are created before would be connected, but he took these other spiritual beings and he fell away. And those are the demons that we have today as well as Lucifer. And then they'll say something like, so yes, it's true that Jesus and Lucifer are brothers, but, but Jesus is my brother as well and, G uh, and Satan is your brother as well because we're all related and we're all brothers. Now, I don't know about you, but that explanation doesn't make it better for me because what they've done is taken Jesus, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and they've brought him down to everybody else. They also believe that God was a spirit being before, that he has a body just like our body. They believe that he has multiple wives that he's creating spiritual babies with even to this day. What they believe is strange and bizarre and weird, but they don't tell you any of that. In fact, I remember talking to a couple of elders. This is years ago now. Then, of course, they were like 18 years old, right? And they're at my door, they're elders. And I remember telling them, well, you guys teach that Jesus is the brother of Lucifer. They go, no, we don't. I go, yeah, you do. This is before the time that we could have just popped it up on the internet and checked it out. 
And I said, yeah, you do. And they go, no, we don't. And I go, you guys really don't know? Are you lying to me or do you not know? And in the course of this conversation, the one guy got so mad, he doubled up his fists. And I was like, you're going to hit me? I was a little bit antagonistic. Maybe I shouldn't have been. But you're going to hit me? Is what you're going to Because you don't know what your church believes. They've sent you out here unprepared. Now, since then, they prepare their people for what they believe so that when they show up, it doesn't come out of the blue. But this is not the Jesus that we serve. We serve the creator of the universe, which takes us to what the Jehovah Witnesses believe. Both of these, both of these groups started up in the, what, 1800s, right? In the early to mid-1800s. The Jehovah Witnesses believe that Jesus is Michael the Archangel. Michael means like God. And so they'll go, Michael the Archangel in the Old Testament is Jesus. And then when he became man, it was Michael the archangel in the flesh. They also teach that he was the firstborn among creation. We'll talk a little bit more about that when we get into the text. In other words, God created, this is what the Job Witnesses teach, that God created Jesus first and then Jesus created everything else. That's why when they tell, they'll tell you, oh yeah, Jesus is the creator. Everything was created by him, but he was the first one created by God. We're going to see clearly that's not what the Bible teaches, nor is it what church history taught at all. And it's important for you to understand that so that you can defend your position and know that Jesus is not our brother. He's not Michael the archangel. In fact, this passage here is going to tell us that he is way above that. We could... Um, we could talk about the, the Jesus-only movement or the oneness Pentecostal movement as well who believe that Jesus, that there's, they deny the Trinitarian aspect of the deity. They believe that when Jesus was on earth, there was no Father and no Spirit anywhere else. It was all in Jesus. And then in heaven, when the Father's there, there's no Jesus and there's no Holy Spirit. It's only the Father. They believe that you have to baptize in the name of Jesus to be saved, even though Jesus said baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're going to say that name is Jesus. There's a couple of references in the book of Acts to being baptized in the name of Jesus. And they go, see, it's the, the name of Jesus. But they're denying the biblical Jesus. And if they're bringing you a different Jesus, then it's worth you asking the question whether or not that is the genuine Jesus that you, would, that you would believe in to commit your life to Christ. Early Christians, these early Christians had fallen under persecution. Judaism was a sanctioned religion from Rome. Christianity wasn't. So they moved from a sanctioned religion, being Jewish, into something that wasn't and were feeling the heavy persecution on it. So they were wanting to go back into the law. And so this whole chapter is dedicated to showing that Jesus is greater than the angels. And the reason that they do that, that the writer of the Hebrews does this, is because in the law, angels were involved in bringing the law. God had written the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, with his own finger. Then Moses broke that, and God was like, you get back up there and you write another one. And angels had been, been involved in bringing the law. And so he wants to show that those who were involved in bringing the law, Jesus is greater than they are. Just a few things about angels. I could have kept going. I started writing down some things and I could have kept going, but I just wanted to write down a few things. They are a little above humans. Philippians tells us that Jesus became a little lower than the angels. So angels are a little above us. 
They are one angel in the Old Testament killed 185,000 men. They ministered to Jesus and were at his command. When Jesus was arrested, he said to Peter, don't you know that I could call 12 legions, 12,000 angels to come, or 12, yeah, 12 legions to be able to come and rescue me? So, I mean, think about how powerful that would have been and would have been something to see as well. They minister to those of us that have salvation. And I love that aspect that angels are a little lower than, than we're a little lower than them, but they minister to us. And I find that to be very biblical. Remember that, that Jacob the younger is chosen over Esau the older, and you find that principle throughout the Old Testament. And so we have angels that are, are serving us in salvation, and we are given the gospel to share to people, which is pretty phenomenal, because God could have given it to angels to share, and that we would be helping angels out. But God chose to give us the gospel and for us to share it and to be helped out by angels. Pretty amazing. Children have their angels. Children have angels. Jesus talked about not hurting one of these very young children. He said, for their angels constantly see the face of God. They worship God. Angels worship God. They are all around the throne room. There are different kinds of angels. They have a free will. And about a third of them chose that they would not follow after God. They do the bidding of God. They help to bring the law, which I just spoke about. They were called in the book of Daniel, watchers. And I like that name for angels. I think a lot of people do. They watch over kingdoms. We see that in the book of Daniel as well. They answer our prayers. When we pray, angels often respond to those. Remember the church was praying for Peter to be released? And an angel came to the prison where he was, woke Peter up because he was sleeping again and led him out of prison. They shine with glory. They have a, a, an impressive look. People would fall down in front of them to worship them. They can appear as men. Some have entertained angels unaware. And that's just a handful of things about angels. I believe that God doesn't give us all of the details about the angelic and the demonic realm, their, um, their beginning, or, or really even their end. We don't get a, a lot of details. We get some, a general outline of them. But I believe that God doesn't give us a lot of details because I believe that we would become obsessed. With just the information that we have, we become obsessed with angels anyway. And I believe that if we ever saw an angel like Daniel, Daniel fell down on the ground. John fell down before an angel in the book of Revelation. Do you remember what the angel did? Get up. What are you doing? I'm just like you. They, they wouldn't receive worship. It's interesting that Thomas fell down and worshiped Jesus and said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus didn't rebuke him because Jesus isn't Michael the archangel. And so we pick it up in verse 5. Again, I'll encourage you to go back and listen to the first study of the first four verses. He introduces Jesus, and then he gives us a sevenfold description of Jesus in the first four verses. And it's called the glorious description, a sevenfold glorious description of Jesus. And it's awesome. And then after that description of who he is, it says in verse 5, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, and again, I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. So he's making a distinction between Jesus and this glorious description that's in the first four verses and angels now. And he says, to which of the angels does he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. 
And this is a quote seven times. I find that number interesting. There's seven descriptions of Jesus in the first four verses. There's seven times that he, he quotes Psalms talking about who Jesus is. So he's getting this information from the Old Testament scriptures. And here he, first thing he does is quote Psalms 2. I'm going to start reading in verse 7. And I'm going to make it down to verse 12. It says in Psalms 2, verse 7, remember this is the Old Testament scriptures, right? This is the, the Jewish Bible. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth, serve the Lord and fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in your way when his wrath is kindled but a little bit, blessed are those who put their trust in him. This is a messianic psalm. And it's not a messianic psalm because we at the church look back at it and go, that's obviously talking about Jesus. Jesus is the son of God. That's obviously talking about him. It's a messianic psalm because Jews in history identified it as a messianic psalm. This is talking about the Messiah. Go back to verse seven again. He says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask and I will give to you the nations for an inheritance. This is the son that God has chosen, the Messiah that would come upon the earth and he would be the only begotten of the father. None of the angels were begotten by God. In the book of Job, they are called the sons of God. It says the talking about the angels, the sons of God presenting themselves before God and the Satan or the, the opposer stood with him. And God asked the opposer, what have you been doing? And he said, I've been walking around the earth watching men. And he says, have you considered my servant Job? And that's when the opposer who we, the Satan uh, turned, that's what the word Satan means, and set his attention on Job. They are called sons of God because they don't have any, no earthly father or, or no father other than the one who created them. But Adam was created by God and Adam was called a son of God because Adam was created directly by God and Jesus is called the only begotten of the Father because he's the only one in all of history that God placed supernaturally inside of a woman's womb. And that, of course, would be Mary. And then Jesus would be called the Son of God. Verse 12 again, kiss the Son lest he be angry. Hey, we all have to, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believed in him would not perish. Kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in your ways. The second part of verse five, where he says, again, I will be a, a, to him a father and he shall be to me a son, is a quote out of 2 Samuel chapter seven, where David is given the promise of a son who's gonna sit on the throne and it's talking about Solomon, but that the throne of David is gonna be an everlasting throne. And so he brings that up because Jesus sets upon the throne of David. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse -verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. 
For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com and don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living. Do you love Jesus? Do you want to dig deeper in your walk with God? Then you are a great fit for REACH College with enrollment opportunities. To attend as a student or an auditor, the courses challenge you to analyze your way of thinking as you grow in your walk with Jesus. Find out more at thereachcollege.org. That is thereachcollege.org.